Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.11 a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the 13th of December, 2021, and this is episode 516 of Bitcoin and I'll be gone for probably the last part of December. So I'm going to, you know, do my best to record uh, all this week and bring you the news, but I'm taking, I'm going to take a vacation for Christmas. So I'm not going to be recording. No, that doesn't mean that I'm gone forever. I will be back. I'm just telling you, expect me to not have shows for a little while because I kind of want to chill out and hang with the family and do Christmas stuff and try to, you know, remember what it's like to be a human that isn't scared to death all the time of everything and everybody and every sneeze and every cough and surfaces and grocery stores and restaurants and, you know, the, the normal shit that we're apparently all, you know, afraid of now. It's so sad. I, I'm just, I'm starting to see people masking back up in my small rural town. And it's sad because this is a really conservative place, right? And it's like, oh my God, if even the hardcore, you know, redneck, you know, conservatives are starting to get, you know, scared again, you know, shit doesn't bode well. However, what I will say is that over there in France, it looks like they're not having any more of it. It looks like shit broke loose this weekend, and there was basically a riot between protesters and cops. I mean, physical altercations of them beating the living shit out of each other physically with feet, hands, sticks, clubs, bottles, you name it, tear gas. It was saw a couple of videos and it does not look pretty. It does look like the French after three fucking years, by the way, and I'll get to that here in a second, have finally figured out that this shit is not going in their favor and that there is no amount of marching in the street with cheap cardboard signs with Sharpie written on them that is going to change one damn thing. You know, this shit was happening in France in the 1700s and that's when you got the French Revolution doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome of the French Revolution was all tidy. It it wasn't, but they had just, the peasants had just had enough. And violence is now in the streets of France. Will it continue? I don't know. I don't know what's going on right there, you know, over there right now, because, you know, we have to depend on mainstream media and they're not reporting on anything. The only thing that you're actually getting is, you know, citizen reporting, and that's being squelched by Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of the mainstream social medias. I don't know, man. It's It just looks like it's a mess over there. So why did I say three years? November 17th, 2018 was the year, and it was rather the day and the year of the very first instance of what came to be known as the Yellow Vest protests. And they would, every weekend, you'd see the truckers because it was like these weird gas rationing rules that was like, you know, it was clearly the start of inflation and then they were just being their gas prices were so high they weren't making any money and 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 the gas prices were high because of as far as i can tell taxes that were levied by the government and it wasn't necessarily you know refinement cost or shipping cost of the gasoline that made the prices so damn high it was the excise tax or whatever the hell you want to call it on the fuel itself and it caused the yellow vest protests to erupt and they went on like literally every weekend for a year. What happened? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What did you get? You got COVID. That's what you got in 2019. About a year later, we started hearing rumbling is out of China. And then by December, we started seeing people flopping on the ground and it was just, Oh my God. And then 
now we've got, you know, Vax man, like, you know, last week and months before we had protests in France that kind of migrated from yellow vest into the mandate stuff and the closures. You couldn't go to work, blah, blah, blah. And it got worse and worse and worse. Well, now it, so I have always been asking at what point does a group of people, what does it take for them to break loose and start, you know, clubbing the man with sticks and stones, right? Well, apparently it takes three years of solid repression. Apparently we're looking at a three year out for how long it takes people to just finally have enough, take to the streets and actually go pummel the people that are oppressing them. I don't really wish that this was happening. I, I wish it was different, but I, these at, at one point or another, the shit was bound to break loose and apparently it takes three years. So <clears throat> given the fact that all this stuff started in France in November of 2018, we have another year before this shit breaks loose, probably in the United States. And will we still be under these mandates and all that, the same kind of push that we're seeing for the, for a, an entire other year? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to back off or not. If they don't back off, then I expect in, in about a year that the United, the people of the United States will just say, fuck it and start doing the same shit. What'll be happening in France at that time? I don't know. <laughs> because if this shit doesn't stop at one point or another, the, those riots are going to find their way to parliament or something like that. And it's going to be a real fireworks show, but let's go to Germany now instead of France, <clears throat> Germany's trillion Euro savings bank mulls a crypto wallet. This is by John O'Donnell out of Reuters. Uh, from Frankfurt, Germany's savings banks, a conservative bastion that holds more than 1 trillion euros for thrifty Germans, is examining offering a wallet to trade cryptocurrency, a group of them said on Monday. The project marks a potentially radical departure from the traditional stance of the group, whose customers still use cash and eschew risky investing or heavy borrowing. Entrusted with the savings and investments of roughly 50 million customers, they make up Germany's largest financial group. Quote, the interest in crypto assets is huge, a spokesperson for the banks said. German magazine Capital first reported the news. The move comes against a backdrop of, you guessed it, high inflation and penalty charges on banks and savers, fueling a heated debate in Germany about central bank money printing. It has prompted Germans to invest more in property and elsewhere to avoid what some have dubbed the expropriation of their wealth. God dang, this language is pretty hardcore coming out of Reuters. Think about it. I mean, it's, they're not, they don't look like they're sugarcoating it, which is good. Continuing on, last month, Helmut Schweiss, the president of the German Savings Bank Association, called the combination of low interest rates and rising prices a toxic mix, saying it had become harder to stop the erosion of wealth. Bitcoin, the world's largest cryptocurrency with a market cap of $1.2 trillion has risen strongly, fueled in part by fears of inflation, with its limited supply seen as offering protection. Bitcoin also has dozens of smaller rivals, most of whom have little use beyond trading, all vying for a share of the $2 trillion digital currency market. Among the major altcoins, as all cryptocurrencies aside from Bitcoin are known, some such as Shitcoin One aspire to be the backbone of a future financial systems. Other like Shitcoin Two are barely used in payments at all. For the retail punters pouring money into them, their inherent volatility exposing them to potentially heavy losses often matter little. Instead, they see a chance for quick profit. All right, yep, that actually, he, the dude nailed it pretty good. Good work, John O'Donnell. Not nice, nice. Uh, so, fifty million users in Germany of this of these banks uh, are are asking their bank to start. You know, basically, they're saying we want to be able to get into this asset class. I am thankful that John just started up talking about Bitcoin and only mentioned the names of two shitcoins. He actually mentioned them by name. I refuse to do it here. When I do actually mention a name of one of the shit coins, it's, for, it's either I have completely blown it and messed up or it's kind of critical for you to know what the name is. So, but in this particular case, I didn't need to do it. <clears throat> 
This is a strange one. And no, I do not know if this particular one is true, but for all the Tether haters and, and the Tether lovers, apparently Myanmar's shadow government declares USDT an official currency. Uh, Frashit Jha has this one for Cointelegraph. Myanmar's, uh, oh, sorry, Myanmar's shadow government, uh, the National Unity Government, or NUG, led by the supporters of jailed leader Aung San Suu Kyi, has declared the United States dollar-based stablecoin Tether as an official currency for local use. Per a report published in Bloomberg, the NUG will accept Tether for its ongoing fundraising campaign seeking to topple the current military regime in Myanmar. The shadow government also raised $9.5 million through the sale of Spring Revolution special treasury bonds offered to the Myanmar diaspora, or sorry, diaspora across the world. The group aims to raise $1 billion through the sale of NUG-issued bonds. The NUG Ministry of Planning, Finance, and Investment posted an announcement regarding the move on Facebook on Monday. The NUG's decision to make Tether an official currency undermines the crypto ban imposed by the Central Bank of Myanmar in May last year. The incorporation of Tether as an official currency for local use is prompted by privacy concerns and the seizing of funds by the current regime. The NUG finance minister said the primary reason behind Tether's incorporation is, quote, domestic use to make it easy and speed up the current trade, services, and payment systems, end quote. The NUG was recognized as the official government of Myanmar by the French Senate and the European Parliament in October of 2021. However, the United States has not made any move in this direction. The NUG's decision to accept and use Tether stablecoin could become a point of discussion among nations, especially at a time when the United States government is looking to impose strict, strict stablecoin issuance policies. I have no idea whether or not this story is true, okay? It is out of Cointelegraph, and I, I just, I, I don't know, okay? What's odd is that I'm just now hearing about this shadow government. And that's because we're also being distracted by, well, actually, we are in the midst of being distracted from everything that's happening in the world by the mainstream media. For whatever reason, I don't have to get all tinfoil hatty about it. It's just what's going on. You, you're not hearing about actual news anymore. You turn on NPR, what is it? It's the, the, NPR used to report on news a long time ago. Even though they had a left-handed bent, they still actually talked about world events. The only thing they talk about now is the United States federal government. That's it. So you're not getting any, you know, Myanmar news out of them. You're not getting it out of CNN. You're not getting anything. So this is, I'm literally shocked that there's such a thing as a quote unquote shadow government that has been recognized in Myanmar. And that happened the month before last. Holy shit. Did you know about this? Because I didn't. Anyway, the fact that they want to use Tether as, as local and legal currency I don't even know what to think about that, honestly. If I say it's it's good for Bitcoin, the Tether haters are going to hate me. If I say it's bad for Bitcoin, the Tether lovers are going to hate me. There's no way to win here, which is why one of the, well, actually, it's not why. It's one of the considerations I have for not using Tether, but that's like 1% of the reason I don't use Tether. I don't use Tether because I don't need Tether. I don't trade Bitcoin. I don't trade shit coins. I don't do it. So therefore, I don't need a stable coin right now. And I don't know if I ever will need a stable coin. And I don't know if what I would use. I sure as shit ain't going to use that crap out of circle. I'll tell you that much. But all that aside, what do you think? Is the adoption of Tether as a stable coin for local currency in Myanmar good for Bitcoin or not? My DMs are open or you can just uh, say your piece on my Twitter account, B E N, just tag me, you know, at B E N N D 77. That's B E N N D 77. And let's move on to eyebrows. I mean, Miami's mayor wants some of his 401k in Bitcoin, Tim Hockey, writing for decrypt.co. Miami's Bitcoin loving mayor, Francis Suarez, and his eyebrows <coughs> told a reporter at Real Vision's takeover event in Las Vegas on Friday 
that he's planning to take some of his 401k retirement in his favorite cryptocurrency. The news comes a month after his reelection. Back then, the 41-year-old mayor announced he'd take his next paycheck in Bitcoin. True to his word, Suarez has indeed been collecting some wages in the world's most popular cryptocurrency using payments processor Strike. Congratulations, Jack Mallers. Not to be outdone, Jackson, Tennessee Mayor Scott Conger responded to the news early Sunday by tweeting, quote, all of our employees will soon have this option, end quote. Suarez and Conger both have a long history of Bitcoin maximalism in their respective cities. Back in January, Suarez had a video interview with Gemini co-founders Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss. The three of them discussed Bitcoin and crypto regulation as part of Suarez's mission to make Miami the most crypto-competitive city on the planet. Over the summer, Suarez told attendees at Miami's Bitcoin Carnival that he's trying to create the Bitcoin blockchain and mining capital of the world. And earlier this year, the city's governing commission passed a resolution that Suarez had pushed proposing to explore the practicalities of paying city workers in Bitcoin. In June, Suarez helped to secure $25 million in funding from investment firm Borderless Capital to help blockchain startups and entrepreneurs in the city. That same month, Blockchain.com announced it was relocating to Miami from New York, citing the city's welcoming regulatory environment. And in early August, CityCoins, a blockchain project that promotes investment in cities by enabling people to buy or mine city-specific tokens, launched Miami Coin, netting a sweet $8 million in revenue for the city in just two months. Meanwhile, in Tennessee, Conger established a blockchain task force to discuss the possibility of accepting property tax payments in Bitcoin. The task force also will look into giving Jackson employees the option to invest in Bitcoin through dollar cost averaging, a method where investors buy Bitcoin periodically to negate its volatility. Conger is an unabashed Bitcoin maxi. This year, he briefly rocked laser eyes on his Twitter profile to signal his prediction Bitcoin will rise to $100,000. In April, he even knocked heads with Suarez to discuss integrating cryptocurrencies into Jackson's economy. Conger's response to Suarez's announcement about receiving his retirement in Bitcoin might be the beginning of a sporting rivalry between the two Bitcoin maxi mayors. Okay, two things about this. Uh, let's do the, the, the rivalry here. Um, Jackson, Mississippi uh, is... Uh, you, if we can get, if they can get a rivalry going between Jackson and Miami, that's going to be as cool as the developing rivalry between Nashville and Austin. That is apparently starting to occur. If the more that we can get this kind of boil, you know, get this pot to boil a little bit, and it's got to be a kind rivalry, you know, where yeah, they're our enemy but we love to go get, you know, hang out with them and get drunk because we actually all want the same thing. It's that kind of rivalry, right? Where Miami or Miami's, you know, tries to take, you know, the population away from Jackson. Jackson tries to, you know, pull people out of Miami to come up to Jackson because Nashville is starting to kind of, you know, they're starting to like peck and, and kind of scratch around Austin. And I think they may be looking to pilfer some things. I think Austin should start pilfering from Nashville. It's, it'll be awesome. And think about the rivalry between, rivalry between Austin, Texas, and Nashville. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, that would just be totally awesome. Because, why? Well, they're both, um, they're both music capitals. They're both music capitals. And I, I screwed up. It's not Jackson, Mississippi. It's Jackson, Tennessee. Sorry about that. In either, in either event, if... Nashville and Austin start, start a rivalry on Bitcoin that could actually build into a music rivalry and all kinds of neat stuff could happen out of this. And the second thing that I wanted to say was about the property tax, um, the possibility of accepting property tax payments in Bitcoin. That's what Conger over there in Jackson, Tennessee is saying, um, could like, we, we don't like tax. None of us do. Okay. It's, it's theft. But let's think of it in a different way for the short-term and medium-term gain of Bitcoin. If you are going to have to pay tax anyway, you might as well convert the fiat that you're going to have to pay, pay in tax to Bitcoin and pay that property tax in Bitcoin. 
and see what happens to the Bitcoin price. And if they hold it on their books, if they hold, you know, most of the, or even some of the Bitcoin that they got in through property taxes on their books, would it be possible that they'd be able to lower property taxes and that it becomes a self-feeding, you know, cycle where property taxes start to decrease because the coffers that they have been collecting property tax in before start to swell because of an increase in price and purchasing power that Bitcoin affords. If that were to happen, you've got a feedback loop that is, that is actually a good feedback loop. Most feedback loops suck, right? They always end up really messy, whether you're playing on stage and got feedback in your microphone or you've got something else going on. Usually feedback loops are not all that good. In this particular case, it would be good. So if you are one of the people that can pay your uh, property taxes in Jackson, Tennessee, in Bitcoin, consider doing it. Even though I know you're gagging, you hate tax. I get it. I get it. I get it. But what if it got to the point where there was barely any property tax at all in a city because they started early and they started collecting Bitcoin early and they started actually being fiduciarily, you know, cognizant of their commitment to the citizenry of that town. And then over the years, property taxes just are able to be reduced and reduced and reduced. And what does that do? Makes people want to move to Jackson, Tennessee, because it's low property taxes. And then all of a sudden their tax base actually increases. And if all those people start paying their property taxes in Bitcoin, the cycle just continues. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be the only, only way that I wouldn't gag on a stick paying property taxes. Now here's the problem though. Most property taxes are actually rolled into your, um, your, uh, mortgage payment. So if you have a mortgage payment, I'm not sure if you could get to, you know, call your mortgage company and say, look, uh, I'll, you know, add however much I need to add for you to separate my, separate out my property tax and let me pay that on my own. I'm not sure if that can actually happen. If somebody wants to find out, please let me know if that can happen. But otherwise, you know, you'd have to actually work a deal out with your mortgage company and say, hey, you need to pay the property tax portion of that in Bitcoin. And you know what their answer is going to be. It's going to be no until enough people get on their ass. And it would have to be tens of thousands of customers all phoning in and jamming up their lines for them to even consider it. But consider this. 90% of all 21 million Bitcoin have now been mined. Over 90% of the amount of Bitcoin that will ever exist has been mined, according to data from the Clark Moody Bitcoin dashboard. As the monetary network advances in awareness and usage worldwide, fueling an increased demand for BTC, a sudden and robust supply shock might become inevitable. <clears throat> The Bitcoin network, the only form of digital cash that manages to solve the double spending pro problem in a properly distributed and trustless manner, enforces a supply cap of 21 million coins through its consensus protocol run by tens of thousands of nodes worldwide. By the way, this is Namcios writing for Bitcoin magazine. A predictable and unchangeable monetary policy is one of the core aspects that make Bitcoin appealing, especially in the face of the reality of fiat and cryptocurrencies, <clears throat> the supply and monetary policy of which <clears throat> can change based on the decision of a select few people. The peer-to-peer -peer electronic money is sound, contrary to soft fiat money. Nobody has the power to inflate the supply of Bitcoin the same way nobody can reduce it. The Bitcoin network is rules without rulers, and the rules are written in stone. Although we are still early has become a meme, it is most likely true. Only a tiny subset of society understands what Bitcoin is and its potential for empowering regular citizens. People living in privileged communities that enjoy high levels of freedom and individual rights can be quick to dismiss Bitcoin. However, the P2P cash system can also empower them. Bitcoin is often a different thing for different people. For instance, it might function as a store of value for someone living in the United States or the UK where inflation isn't soaring but still erodes purchasing power over the years. On the other hand, for someone living in Palestine or frickin' Cuba where war and totalitarianism are commonplace, Bitcoin might be their only hope of finding financial freedom. The broad use cases for Bitcoin around the world demonstrate its versatility in the many ways it can benefit different people in different ways. Still, most people haven't yet realized how Bitcoin can empower them. 
The predictable issuance of new Bitcoin keeps being triggered every 10 minutes on average as another block is mined, irrespective of the level of understanding people may or may not have about the monetary network. With more than 90% of the Bitcoin supply already issued, scarcity is even more evident. Although issuance doesn't determine liquidity, it, as already issued coins can and often are traded on the market, the truth is most of the circulating Bitcoin supplies held by entities with little or no history of selling. A report from December 2020 by data analytics firm Glassnode tried to gauge and shed some light on the liquidity of the Bitcoin supply. It analyzed Bitcoin entities and classified them into three liquidity categories, highly liquid, liquid, and illiquid. Quote, our methodology suggests that currently 14.5 million BTC is held by illiquid entities. Although issued Bitcoin can be traded on the market, most of it is held by people with no intention of selling. The HODL meme is strong in the Bitcoin community and many are directed, or sorry, dedicated um, to holding onto their BTC until hyper-Bitcoinization when they will be able to spend rather than sell as Bitcoin reaches full monetization and becomes a unit of account. But much of the yet to be issued supply isn't very much liquid either. Some of the largest public Bitcoin miners in the world have been embarking on the HODL bandwagon this year. Canadian miner HUD8, for instance, has deposited all of the 256 BTC mined in November into custody. It holds 5,242 Bitcoin in reserve as of November 30th, 2021, once people, institutions, and governments start realizing how scarce Bitcoin is, a whole new level of FOMO will ensue. A supply shock might become inevitable because there is not enough supply to accommodate a sharp rise in demand from big players like hedge funds and central banks, triggering soaring prices until the complete collapse of the United States dollar. Okay, that's the end of the, the article. I like Nomcios, but there's a couple of things here that I kind of don't agree with. Um, this last line, I'm getting, I don't know. I'm getting a little bored with the, when they figure it out. Oh, when, whenever it is that that all the rest of these people finally figure it out, is that ever going to fucking happen? Cause I've been waiting for a while and it's like, just, it's like a slow creep, bro. You know, and it doesn't help, you know, falling from 69,000 down to 48,000. And now we have to contend with the goddamn 48 K gang. You know, you thought 58K gang was bad enough. No, there's a whole new one. 48K gang, bro. And we're just sitting here chilling out. Yes, I know. I mean, I've been, I've been in the game since 2015 and I should know better, but it, it, even, it wears on me too. It's okay. If it was wearing on you, I get it. Just do your best not to sell, okay? But I'm, I'm just saying here that we keep saying this over and over. A supply shock might become inevitable. Um, hedge funds like, you know, or players like hedge funds and central banks is triggering soaring prices. Yeah, fucking win, dude. I got shit that I'd like to do before I die. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm being a little, it's, it's, dude, it's Monday the 13th. Come on. You know, I, I get to be, you know, I get to be a little skeptical on, on days like today, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the short term, I'm skeptical because we have been saying this shit for the last four years when they figure it out, whenever it is that they finally figure it out, they'll figure it out. And then all of a sudden it's to the moon. And I'm like, yeah, been there, done that. And I'm kind of getting tired of the old story, but Let's move on because we have a hell uh, or, or a marriage that has been born out of hell. Robinhood partners with Chainalysis ahead of crypto wallet launch. Blockchain and oh, by the way, Cointelegraph and this is Turner Wright. Uh, blockchain analytics firm Chainalysis will be partnering with Robinhood to provide data and tools for trading in advance of the app launching its crypto wallet. In a Monday announcement, Chain Analysis said the integrated partnerships with Robinhood Crypto will help the trading app meet compliance requirements ahead of the launch of its crypto wallet, expected to roll out for all users as early as 2022. According to Robinhood, the platform will adopt Chain Analysis Know Your Transaction, the firm's monitoring compliance solution, in addition to Chain Analysis Reactor, its investigations software. The trading app 
also said its teams would be using Chainalysis certification programs to achieve compliance. That's all you need to know. I think I mentioned it on Friday maybe, but this is a marriage born in hell. And if you are a Robinhood user, you are now going to be surveilled by Chainalysis. And by the way, uh, it's probably going, they're probably going to get their hooks into who's trading stock. It, it, it's probably going, their chain analysis is probably going to start adding functionality for equities trading as well. Do I know that for a fact? No. Have I heard that as a rumor? Hell no. It's a gut feeling, but I fully will not be surprised one bit. If one day you hear chain analysis now, uh, you know, analyzing equities trading and they're going to have their hooks into Robinhood, which is the largest retail market of equities trading that I know of. My God, can you imagine? Jeez, mother of Christ, my God almighty. Let's run the numbers. Flammable liquids not on fire. Uh, West Texas Intermediate down almost a full point to $71 a barrel. Brent North Sea likewise down almost a full point to $74.47 a barrel. Natural gas, however, bucking the trend, 3.18% to the upside. It's chilling out at $4.05 per thousand cubic feet. And gasoline is down almost a half point to $2.12 a gallon. Shiny metal rocks are mixed. Gold up 0.17% to 1787 bucks, basically where it's been forever. Silver up a half point to $22.26. Platinum is down a full point. Copper is down scant. Palladium down 0.2%. Agricultural futures are mixed. Your winner today is chocolate at a 2.35% to the upside. And uh, wheat is up a quarter of a point. Soybean is your biggest loser at 1.26% to the downside. We have the Dow futures, or actually by this time the markets are open. It's 9.44 my time. So markets are open. Dow is down 0.9%. S&P is down 0.74. NASDAQ down 0.87. And the S&P mini down a full point. Real money cost $47,505 again. Yes, we're bouncing around. It's disgusting. I hate it. But a quarter million transactions performed in the last 24 hours is just over 10,000 transactions on average per hour with only a quarter million Bitcoin trading hands. And that is about 10,000 BTC every hour on the hour being sent. And whoa, that's a low one. Only one BTC is the average transaction value. The median transaction value, likewise, very low. 0.012 BTC or about 560 bucks. Block times are relatively normal, a little on the high side, 10 minutes and 13 seconds. 0.06 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 9 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. And with a 2.5% drop in hash rate, we are back down to 176.8 exahashes per second. However, we did hit an all time high over the weekend for hash rate. So congratulations, Bitcoin. Your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin at 15.8 cents. That's 15.8 United States pennies. 6,358 transactions waiting on five blocks to clear. We are below $900 billion in market capitalization, which is 7.67% of gold's market cap. And you can only get 26.6 ounces of shiny metal rock with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,899,822.75 and 3,286 of those are chilling on the Lightning Network, valued at $156.2 million, run over 18,592 nodes, representing 81,864 payment channels, 75.5%. All that's being run over Tor. And there, that means they're handling 2,480 BTC on 11,448 nodes that we know about. That's going to do it for Vitals.
Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Omkar Godbold's got this one for Coindesk. Bitcoin exchange outflows resume as stock market get over the Fed jitters. Uh, crypto investors appear to have resumed Bitcoin accumulation, a sign they expect the price to rise after U.S. stock markets overcame concerns about the economy to post their strongest gains in 10 months last week. Gee, no, nobody learns. Blockchain data tracked by Glassnode shows the seven-day moving average of exchange flows turned negative a week ago, indicating net outflows. The level fell to 5,000, or sorry, negative 5,924 BTC on Sunday, the lowest reading since early August. According to Into the Block, Coins worth $3 billion left centralized exchanges last week, the biggest weekly outflow in five months. Investors typically take direct custody of coins when anticipating a price rise. A continued exodus of cryptocurrency from exchanges implies less selling pressure in the market and scope of a sharp or scope for a sharp rally. Quote, crypto going into exchanges may signal selling pressure while withdrawals potentially point to accumulation. Lucas Adarumu, uh, an into the block research analysis or analyst said in a weekly research note published on Friday, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite rose 3.8 and 3.6% last week, their biggest weekly ascent since early February, even as a report showed U.S. inflation climbed to a four decade high in November, sealing the deal for a faster unwinding of the crisis era stimulus by the Federal Reserve. The Dow snapped a four-week losing trend with a 4% rally, and Bitcoin ended a three-week losing trend, adding 1.2%. Renewed accumulation amid risk reset in traditional markets perhaps reflects investors' confidence that much of the bad news has been priced in, and the path of least resistance is to the higher side. Risk assets took a beating in the second half of November and earlier this month on the emergence of the new Omicron coronavirus variant and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell's hawkish turn. The Fed will hold its two-day meeting on December the 14th and 15th. The central bank is expected to bring forward the timeline for the end of monthly bond purchases to March 2022 from mid-2022 and signal that it expects to start raising rates next year. I don't think they can. I don't think the math works out, but good luck with that. Fed fund futures appear well ahead of the curve, having already priced in a 25% basis point interest rate increase in May, further rates, sorry, further rates market, markets are pricing, oh God, I'm going to do that again. Further rates markets are pricing in a 91% probability of five, 25 basis point rises over the next two years. I don't think you can do it. Whatever does the bar for a hawkish or anti-stimulus surprise appears to have been set relatively high. Bitcoin and asset prices in general could remain resilient unless the central bank hints at more aggressive tightening than is actually anticipated. Quote, we know the Fed is going to maintain their hawkish stance given last week's inflation numbers, but the critical question is to what extent? We will not be expecting any major surprise as most analysts are aligned towards a faster pace of tapering, said Leonard Neo, head of research at Stack Funds. Quote, traditional markets have shown some resilience the past few days, and this should reduce further downside strain on the crypto markets, at least in the near term, he said. In all, there are 17 central bank meetings this week, including decisions from the Fed, Bank of England, European Central Bank, and Bank of Japan. The Bank of England will likely push out the first interest rate hike in 2022, Bloomberg reported. According to Mark Chandler, the chief market strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex, the BOJ is likely to be a non-event, and the ECB is less worried about inflation than its American counterpart and is unlikely to deliver a hawkish surprise. Who knows what these people are going to do? I, again, I don't think the math works out. If you start pushing interest rates higher, bond prices are going to go lower and you're going to end up eating a bunch of shit if you're holding treasuries. That's just the way this shit works. So I don't know what they're expected to do. I, 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 I literally have no clue. Because at that point, you're going, if you've got a whole bunch of bond, you know, bond holders that are eating shit, for the first time in 40 fucking years, 
then you've got problems. You've got systemic risk everywhere. That's just my gut feeling about it. But we have other fish to fry. His name is Joe Lubin. Daniel Roberts has it for decrypt.co. Ethereum co-founder Joe Lubin says, high gas fees are a measure of success. I'm not even going to read this yet. I remember when Joe Lubin and Vitalik Buterin were all over us about Bitcoin's high transaction fees and how it was a measure of failure. Not for them though. No, the exact same situation for them is a measure of success. That's called marketing and it's a fucking lie. As Ethereum's popularity for everything from DeFi lending to NFT mining has grown, so is the cost of doing business on the network. Gas fees, the amount of GUI or fractions of ETH charged per transaction have steadily risen. That has periodically promoted fierce debates over the network's usability and has given Ethereum challengers like Solana, Avalanche, and Polkadot a chance to pitch themselves as cheaper, faster alternatives. This is all I'm going to read from this article. Why? Because you know what's coming next. It's just going to talk about Joe Lubin and how now it's okay that there's high gas fees. But what I want to, what I want to illustrate here is the advent of Solana, Avalanche, and Polkadot. Polkadot's been around for a long time, people, a lot longer than you think. I remember Polkadot being talked about in 2017 or 2018, if I remember correctly. It's, I think it's possible that DOT has been around since 2015, like right after Ethereum launched. And pretty much nobody really gave it any mind. But now, but, but Solana and Avalanche are, are two completely different creatures, right? They don't have the weaponry to attack Bitcoin. That comes through marketing and, and the lying little skeezes that, that are, you know, at the top of those operations. They don't have any real teeth to go after Bitcoin, but what they can go after is Ethereum. What we have here is a knife fight out in the street on the Lower East Side of fucking New York City. You know, like like think of an alley with nasty ass dumpsters and steam pipes and shit raining and it's like dusk and these four guys are dancing around each other trying to slash each other. What I love about that is like it's the ablative armor to Bitcoin is literally disintegrating right in front of our eyes. And, the, the, and at this point, the, the, the SEC doesn't really have to do anything. They just got to sit back and wait and watch Solana kill Avalanche or Avalanche kill Ethereum or Ethereum kill them both and really destroy, you know, investors sentiment on that side of the sector. I think it's hilarious watching these people go after each other. But what's funny is that I, from what I understand, I haven't heard a whole lot out of Avalanche and Solana that's pegging Bitcoin. It seems to me that most of the narrative that's coming out of those camps are their ire is directed at Ethereum. And here we have Joseph Lubin, who is still directing his ire as he did towards Bitcoin in 2017. He cannot figure out that the sharks are circling, circling his little boat. So it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, that's the only thing that I think, you know, Solana and Avalanche have any use for is destroying Ethereum. But we have bigger fish to fry. My node runs on home solar. How solar energy offers protection from governments and inflation like Bitcoin. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. That doesn't make very much sense as, as far as a headline is concerned. But Heidi Porter wrote it, so we'll go with it. Bitcoin Magazine. The mainstream narrative for Bitcoin in 2021 has centered a lot around the E or environmental aspect of ESG. <sighs> One point that has not been mentioned is that running your own home on renewable energy can protect and insulate you from the bad G of the government's reckless monetary and energy policies. Self-sovereignty is one reason why some survivalists, aka preppers, see renewable energy as part of their standard toolkit. Generating one's own energy protects from various potential types of disruptions to social, political, and economic order. Preppers build homes off-grid so that they can operate independently of the centralized power system. In 2016, the same year I finally bought Bitcoin, we also installed our first residential solar installation. The ultimate goal is to install battery storage so that we could use the stored, stored solar energy at night or low sun times when the solar arrays are just not producing. 
The upfront cost of home solar is relatively large in the calculations of solar payback time via saved electric cost. One of the factors people should consider in their solar paybacks calculations is the very probable future higher cost of electricity. In 2016, solar panel prices were low. The government was giving tax credits for solar, and by my estimation, electric prices were probably going to increase over time. Per Lynn Alden's October 2021 newsletter, we're seeing rising energy prices everywhere. These rising energy prices are not looking like they will be transitory. Home solar can partly insulate you from energy cost inflation, albeit in a different manner than Bitcoin. Paying for our solar installa installation up front and producing our own energy insulates us from higher energy prices that results from government monetary and energy policies. So also, in 2016, our state's legislature was going to remove the solar net metering program. The net metering program enables solar owners to net the energy they produce with the energy they consume from the central power grid. Instead of netting the in and out of solar energy, solar owners energy usage the new program would pay solar owners a discounted rate for the energy they produce but don't use and therefore feed that energy back to the central power grid the power company would then sell this solar produced energy to other consumers at their full rate we would also pay full rate for any nighttime rainy or snowy day energy that we consumed the power companies lobbied hard for the bill, but a bipartisan group helped defeat it at that time. Regardless of that win, we will personally continue to move towards more energy sovereignty so that we are not subject to this government and power companies changing renewable policies. More importantly, the benefits of solar are not just for homeowners and preppers in the United States. Off-grid solar energy is being implemented across Africa as a decentralized form of energy for poor rural areas that are not served by a central grid or even a microgrid. Off-grid solar can be a provider of electricity for those lacking power as well as a buffer against inflationary energy prices in the future. In many cases, users of off-grid solar power can have an independent source of electricity. These off-grid solar energy sources are enabling decentralized energy and freedom from many of the issues which accompany a centralized grid or lack of one. Bitcoin mining is also becoming a means of income in some African nations and some are mining via solar. Africa's interest in mining is only rising per a Compass Mining report published in August of 2021. Coming back to the E, for me, owning home solar enables me to run a Bitcoin node mostly on solar or on energy netted from the grid at night after I output solar to other consumers during the day. When we install solar battery storage, the solar I store from excess daytime energy production will hopefully enable me to run my Bitcoin node on solar power. With relation to ESG, my Bitcoin node on solar has good E and G and insulates me from bad G. The Bitcoin node is enabling decentralized money by using partly decentralized energy. For the people of Africa, and or for the peoples of African and other nations moving forward towards off-grid solar and mining, the same can also be true. The independence of Bitcoin and some form of energy independence is empowering. That's another energy narrative for Bitcoin and ESG. All right. So my question here is when she says Bitcoin node, does she mean just a Bitcoin full node or does she actually mean a miner? Because honestly, it does not take, it, it takes almost no energy to run a Bitcoin uh, full node. I mean, mine runs on a Raspberry Pi. The only thing that I have to power on the Raspberry Pi is the Raspberry Pi itself, the hard drive, the SSD hard drive and the router that it's connected to. That's, that's it. That is minuscule amounts of power. You, you don't need a solar array to run that. If, it's a, if she's talking about a miner, well, then that changes. Yes, you need multiple solar panels to be able to run a miner. But for running just a node, no, you don't. You don't need anywhere close to that amount of electricity. So not exactly sure what she's getting at, but solar, I don't have a problem with solar. I literally, I remember there, I remember reading about this one guy. He was the inventor of a technology called thin film solar panels. And that technology was bought by DARPA like 20 years ago. And you've never seen, you've never heard of it since. And think about what thin film solar would enable. 
think about asphalt uh, 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 roof tiles or shingles. Now, think about being able to uh, plaster thin film solar on top of those shingles and just bundle them like you would be able to bundle any shingle. And then have a technique that is very simple for, you know, regular roofers to use that when they nail these fuckers to the, to the roof, they just end up being a gigantic solar panel that look like regular roof shingles. And that's your, that's, there it is. There you go. But you won't see that because thin film solar got bought by DARPA and put on a shelf and you ain't seen shit about it since. So hopefully one of these days they'll release it or somebody else will develop their own way to do it and not infringe on anybody's patent and we'll get that shit done. But it seemed to me back in the day when I found out about all this that DARPA sure didn't want very simple solutions to uh, giving people cheap solar energy, but whatever. Speaking of whatever, Bank of Russia is going to ban mutual funds from investing in Bitcoin. Have funds staying poor, says Helen Parts from Cointelegraph. The Russian central bank continues its strict policies regarding the cryptocurrency industry, now officially banning mutual funds from investing in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. On December the 13th, the Bank of Russia published an official statement on regulating investment opportunities by mutual investment funds. Despite expanding the number of assets available for investment by mutual funds, the document prohibits fund managers from buying cryptocurrencies as well as financial instruments whose value depends on prices of digital assets. The statement emphasizes that mutual funds are not allowed to provide crypto exposure both to either qualified or unqualified investors. The Bank of Russia previously recommends Asset managers exclude cryptocurrencies from exposure in mutual funds back in July of 2021. According to a report by local news agencies, RBC, there have been no Russian mutual funds with crypto exposure despite having been no formal ban until now. So they didn't even have it. Artem Dev, head of the analytics department at the brokerage firm A-Markets, reportedly said that Russia has only one industry-related exchange-traded fund so far. According to Dave, the fund is managed by the Joint Stock Market or start, sorry, Joint Stock Management Company Broker Credit Service and invests in companies focused on decentralized data storage and blockchain, including firms like Jack Dorsey's Block, PayPal, and Broadcom. Russia's largest bank, Cyber or Spear, is reportedly also planning to launch a blockchain-focused ETF. Spear's Asset management head Vasily Ilnironov said <clears throat> the ETF will be called Blockchain Economy and will invest in stocks related to blockchain adoption. Ilyanov noted that the fund does not fall under the restrictions of the Bank of Russia and can be afforded uh, or offered to retail investors. As previously reported, the Bank of Russia has taken a hard stance on becoming rich, I mean cryptocurrencies, and has barred some big banks from offering crypto investment services. The regulator argued that such services do not meet the interest of investors and bear great risks. Always remember, ladies and gentlemen, that the symbol of the great nation of Russia is a bear. What are you, what are you gonna do? I, I mean, it just, I mean, it's like there was no way out for them. There was just no way out but to have fun staying poor. Uh, let's do this one. Democrats are blowing the Bitcoin vote. Jeff John Roberts for Decrypt.co. Congressman Tom Emmer took to Twitter this week to wish his followers a hearty GM, which Decrypt readers know is crypto speak for good morning. It was just a tweet, but as one Washington observer noted, Emmer is the second GOP member of Congress to offer up a GM, while no Democrat has done so. Oh, those poor people. So what? Does it matter if politicians throw around a piece of crypto slang? It might matter a great deal. The GM gap, (laughs) Jesus, the GM gap is significant because it underscores a broader trend in U.S. politics. Republicans are becoming the party of crypto, while Democrats are earning a reputation as anti-crypto. While figures like Senator Cynthia Lummis push bills to boost the industry, Democrats are taking their cue from tech-averse figures like Elizabeth Warren, who has declared she views crypto as a thing for shadowy supercoders. 
President Biden's pick to run the OCC was a vocal crypto skeptic. She withdrew her nomination earlier this week, thank God. Other Biden appointees, most notably SEC Chair Gary Gensler, have disparaged crypto at all turns and erected regulatory barriers to slow its growth and even drive it away from American shores. This is a terrible mistake. While there are legitimate concerns over crypto, notably scams and rug pulls, and its implications for the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, that's no reason to shun it. Like any technology, crypto and blockchain can be used for good or bad. The tech itself is apolitical. And those who mock it, like Representative Brad Sherman did during a rant in Congress this week, are likely to be seen as fossils, akin to the politicians of the 1990s who blasted a then-new technology that they called the Internet. Why are Democrats opposed to crypto? Their hostility may be rooted in the libertarian leanings of many early crypto adopters. I don't think so, but whatever. Few of whom are inclined to support a party associated with big government. What they're missing is that Bitcoiners will happily support any politician who supports Bitcoin, no matter how flawed. From Naib Bukele to Ted Cruz. Oh, come on. You you, You can't compare Cruz to Bukele. Dude. One is a possible dictator. I don't see Cruz as being able to dictate shit, except maybe or maybe not get a bill pushed through Congress, but that's a little hyperbolic there, man. Today, crypto is used by millions of Americans and is especially popular among younger people and blacks, two groups that are important democratic constituencies. By ridiculing crypto and adopting paternalistic policies such as Gensler's inexplicable aversion to Bitcoin spot ETFs, The party risks alienating these voters in the same way its embrace of Latinx has reportedly turned off Hispanics. Yeah, that was a bad move, by the way. In fact, it was cringe as fuck and embarrassing as hell to watch a whole bunch of left-handed Americans sit there and try to tell Latin America how they were going to think about gender. Do you realize how strong gender roles are in Latin America? Do you have any fucking clue? Gee, is it possible that we might be able to tell how strong their views of gender is in Latin America, considering that Spanish has masculine and feminine versions of articles, verbs, nouns, you name it. The language itself is genderized between male and female. What did you think was going to happen, you dipshits? Continuing on, the irony is that crypto offers Democrats an opportunity. And some younger members of the party clearly see this. This was evident during this week's congressional hearing when Representative Antonio Torres out of New York asked how crypto can lower the cost of his remittances for his constituents in the Bronx. And when Representative Jake Oshenslosh Uh, from Massachusetts, proposed writing bipartisan rules. Actually, no, not Massachusetts. It looks like Maine, if I'm right. Proposed writing bipartisan rules to promote Web3. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Paulus has also been an advocate for crypto and helped found the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. Alas, their voices have been drowned out by older figures like Warren, Biden, and Gensler, who have made clear that the Democratic Party line is that crypto is dangerous. Oh, we're so scared. In adopting this stance, they are rejecting a fast-growing constituency that also contains numerous potential millionaires and billionaire donors. Republicans like Lummis, who have raked in a bundle from crypto owners, and Emmis, who leads a national committee to get Republicans elected, appear to recognize the importance of these crypto whales. The Democrats are already expected to take a drubbing uh, during next year's midterm elections and angering the crypto community won't improve any of their chances. Fortunately for party leaders, they still have 11 months to change their tune. Saying good morning would be a good start. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Okay, as I said earlier, it's Monday the 13th, so this would be a good day for a joke from Dad Says Jokes. The only thing that flat earthers have to fear is fear itself. That's actually one of my more uh, 
uh, favorite ones from Dad Says Jokes. Anyway, if you want to help support the show, please consider using Podcasting 2.0, my preferred method of having people send me actual money via the Lightning Network, which streams Satoshis directly to my Lightning node while I stream you these dulcet tones on podcasting apps like Breeze Wallet, uh, Sphinx Chat, and what's becoming one of my favorite ones is Fountain. Fountain, the Fountain uh, podcasting app has come on the scene and it's really good. I mean, it's really, really good. Don't get me wrong. I still like Sphinx. I still dig Breeze, but I'm really digging Fountain uh, as well. So I've been digging into that. How does it work? Well, you grab the Fountain app, you look for Bitcoin uh, and um, on the uh, on the list of of available podcast and you don't have to do anything else but have an active loaded wallet inside fountain they have a wallet inside fountain and you can use that just figure out you know load that wallet up on fountain with some satoshis and then you can just set to stream me one two three or a hundred sats per minute as you listen depending on what you feel this podcast is worth and i do hope that you feel that it is worth something because I like bringing it to you and I've been doing this for over three years and I just don't feel like stopping. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.